This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast that covers all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Peter Gardet, our lead research director of the Energy View Climate and Clean Tech team, which is focused on specifically the intersection of finance and the clean tech sector. So, Peter, how are you? Good, thanks. So. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, it's a uh, I guess we are here on on a Monday during a short week. I uh, hope you had a nice weekend. Yeah, it was good. It's uh, very nice weather in New York, so I will take it. Good, good. Well, the big news today, I think, is the uh, I think the name of the barge is the Ever Given, uh, uh-huh. which is now floating again in the Suez Canal after that had been constricted. So, so as a New York resident, as I was looking at that, I, I couldn't help to think about my difficulties parallel parking. <laughs> How are you as a parallel parker in New York? Uh, so fortunately, like most New Yorkers, I don't own a car. But for a number of years when I did, I ended up biting the bullet and paying a small fortune for parking yeah. just because I was too paranoid about parking in the street. Less <laughs> for my own uh, parallel parking than just everyone, everyone, I'm not counting, I'm counting myself here, uh, drives kind of crazy and I just couldn't trust that my windshield like the <laughs> side mirrors were going to be safe so we did that so my wife and I lived in Chicago for a while and we did the same thing where, where we paid to park in a garage uh in, in large part because we, we didn't we, we moved there in January and we got a um a huge snowstorm and we were parked on the street and a snowplow you know nothing melts in January in uh Chicago and we could not get our car out for weeks. Uh, and so we were, we were, that was the best money maybe that we've ever spent was all street parking in Chicago. I very much sympathize with this pilot or captain or whenever one calls a ship or you know, barge driver. Yeah, because yeah. I feel like this guy is just, you know, the, or this person is under all sorts of a microscope for parallel parking. I mean, the way they designed these ships now, uh, I was at in Panama a few years ago at the Panama Canal, and they really do design them exact and exact fit. They leave, you know, an astonishingly tiny amount of space on either side of the vessel as compared yeah. to the size of canals. So, uh, you know, they not much room for error. Clearly, clearly. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So, all right. Well, well in other uh, in other conversation, uh, we're here today to, to talk about you know a, a topic that, that you recently published on, uh, and I'll read the full name of the report. But financial firms take county part counterparty role in corporate renewable energy buying, and this is really looking at the role of the financial sector in uh, renewable procurement. Can you maybe summarize some of? Um, you know, the, the, the big takeaways from the report and why we chose to publish it when we did? Yeah, absolutely. So traditionally in energy markets, uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with the old sort of hub and spoke model where a utility, a power company 
owns a big power plant and they also operate the transmission grid or do so with a partner. And those, either that single firm or those two firms simply deliver power to an end customer who pays a power bill. And that holds true for everything from a household to uh, a manufacturing plant. Increasingly, as renewables have become more and more cost competitive, this sort of in-between market structure has emerged where companies will directly contract with power providers. So either solar manufacturers who have operating arms or literally independent power providers, IPPs, who Mm -hmm. uh, sell, you know, will build a solar array or wind farm and sell that power directly to a manufacturing plant. Sometimes they'll do it by selling into the grid and sort of reallocating that power, if you like, to the end consumer. Sometimes they'll do it by literally placing the solar array near the manufacturing facility. The thing is that's been done sort of through this somewhat complicated process using tax equity and tax incentives. But increasingly, there have been some shifts in the market where the large uh, financial players, the asset managers and big institutional investors have been building these power plants, selling directly to utilities and creating structures so that they can garner the benefits of the cash flow, the benefits of the tax equity, the benefit of the emissions offsets all at once, rather than going through that kind of complex intermediary phase. And describe tax equity, please. So tax equity, word of warning, it can get really complicated, like everything to do with (laughs) taxes. But in concept, it's pretty simple. You can take tax incentives, production tax and tax incentives, or um, investment tax credits, and apply them to your profit, to the taxes that you would ordinarily pay. Mm -hmm. And so if you build a solar array and you get a 20% tax credit on that, you can take 20% of what you earn and apply that against your profits from some other part of your company. The issue is that a lot of energy companies, and particularly these independent energy companies or solar companies, just didn't make enough money to use those tax credits on their own balance sheet. So they would enter into these somewhat complex transactions where they would sell the tax equity to a bank, which would then Mm -hmm. sell it on to a company that could use that, a Google, Disney, any number of household name companies use tax credits and tax equity markets in this way. And, you know, that worked for a long time. The economics of the business have just changed as it's grown more mature, as the size of these projects have gotten a lot larger, as the companies themselves have become more profitable. So in some ways, the tax equity market is a victim of its own success. It's designed to kind of accelerate the growth of a new technology. It did that. Now it's gotten to a scale where it's kind of lived out its purpose on wind and solar. I do think it's going to be very valuable for other technologies, but in some ways we're seeing the market move past it a little here. And so, and then I guess with that, it sounds like we're seeing a a, uh, a doubling down of commitment from the financial sector into these less complex arrangements. Yeah, I mean, on the face of it, less complex. 
I think financials like to add complexity at the back end once they understand the risk. So what really appeals to both of the parties in any one of these arrangements for the utility, they're paying less for super reliable supply. Mm-hmm. For I'm for that's for the end customer, so for the manufacturer, for the financing company, asset manager, or the investor, you're getting a very reliable return at an above rate of treasury return. So even if it's only earning five or six percent every year, you're still making substantially more than you would make in treasuries or really in a lot of the other equally safe investments. Sure. And how long are they? I mean, these are multi-decade agreements? Yeah, they often run up to 20 years. Uh, Customarily, they have sort of reopener agreements, arrangements in them so that the cost of power remains competitive, takes into account any operational changes, but uh, they will be multi-decade agreements often. And are there any regions that were, um, are these, I suppose, most advantaged in the higher priced power markets? Not necessarily. A lot of it is about regulation. So there's kind of two ways of approaching this. You could either take that direct sale approach in which you are building a renewable energy facility and selling directly to a customer. Anything that's left over, you can kind of sell into the transmission grid. That it tends to be in less regulated markets. Generally speaking, that's the southern half of the United States. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, the northern half of the United States has more uh, structure around its reliability requirements. And so it will require any uh, independent power producing facility to sell into the broader transmission grid in order to kind of maintain that transmission grid and contribute to its operations. So in that case, they'll use something called a green tariff. Financially speaking, it has many of the same benefits, you know, that same reliability on both sides, often very cost competitive, but it essentially uses the uh, transmission market in the middle that's regulated as a mechanism for delivering and off-taking the actual electrons. Okay. Well, so you and I were talking last week, there was uh, an article that we both read in the Financial Times uh, looking at, I think it said, you know, clean tech 2.0 or something like that, um, that, that was showing a real maturation of the, the clean, the, the low carbon business. Uh, and I think there was, you know, at least one speaker in the article saying this time it's different. Does this give more confidence around that clean tech 2.0 idea that things are more mature and that this time is quote unquote different? So this time is different, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that it's a 2.0 of what happened before. I kind of am a veteran of clean tech 1.0, and I remember the rush to it very well. At the time, a lot of the same themes that we're seeing now around the kind of intersection between digitalization and clean energy were already beginning to emerge. But the venture capital structures that Silicon Valley relied on really didn't work well with a manufacturing model, which is what solar, wind energy, so much of energy infrastructure still is. So this second round, Cleantech 2.0, if you like, still has that fundamental tension within it, where uh, which parts of the value chain link really well with digitalization platforms and automation, AI, all those things, 
those still work really well for Silicon Valley financing structures in those companies. The manufacturing component, that is always going to be a challenge for them. One of the things I noticed in that article is that they brought up corporate venture capital. So a lot of the shells, the BPs, uh, so on of the world, have been launching these uh, corporate venture capital arms, CVC. And this has been kind of a big trend, and they're putting big uh, dollars behind it. Those have a very mixed history. So I think it's yet to be proven whether a corporate venture capital arm can really uh, generate the kind of innovation that a normal VC would, and then translate that into a manufacturing you know, scale. So still still to be determined, a lot of this has been driven by SPACs, frankly, that allows public equity investors to participate in a venture capital style mm-hmm. firm. And so you have uh, a number of Silicon Valley companies attracting public equity level investing. And that's it's hard to tell to what degree that's a trend. Clearly, it's very hot right now. So we'll see how that goes in the next year, I would say. It sounds like these are different things, though, that they, I guess both are showing a real commitment from large, sophisticated financial players. But this procurement piece is... Um, I suppose more certain uh, returns, uh, all in a low carbon mindset, but but not necessarily the uh, the 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 2.0 idea that what we're seeing on the SPACs and some of these other uh, mom and pop companies. Those are much more junior technologies, much earlier in their development phase. Wind and solar at this point are cost competitive on their own merits in many places and in many instances, and are only going to get more so uh, as the supply chains continue to build out, as the operational history is there. You know, this is, a, at this point, it's no longer really an innovation business often in wind and solar. Those utility scale solutions are already at the level where you're talking about cash flow rather than a sort of startup level hockey stick growth curve. Mm-hmm. Whereas you look at electric vehicles and batteries and those kinds of technologies, which count as clean tech, those things are still earlier in their technology development cycle. And there's still a lot of room for those gigantic returns that Silicon Valley structures need. Okay. Well, are the same types of uh, financial firms, I think the, the report you mentioned, Shaw, D.E. Shaw, Next Energy, Brookfield, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but Kai State Depot, Quebec. The, the Quebec Pension Fund. That <laughs> yeah, so that's a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so all of those are very similar firms. DE Shaw, I would put maybe slightly in a different bucket, but the rest of them have very clear sort of investment remits. They need to produce returns above a certain index level for guaranteed payouts over time to pension funds and uh, those kinds of investors. These are not your early stage kind of looking for big spreads. And what they will do is they'll take those a reliable sort of cash flow that is coming in at four or five percent. And they will, in many cases, securitize that cash flow and then begin to trade it. And that will create a separate revenue stream for them. One of the other things I mentioned in the paper is 
around additionality as far as it applies to a carbon allowance, the carbon offset market. So that's another potential cash flow sort of stream for them and a trading opportunity for them. But fundamentally, most of them are really looking at this as like a an income producing asset rather than a technology play. Okay. And additionality uh, is a new word for me. <laughs> can you can you go into a little bit more detail on, on what additionality is and how it uh, affects this this motion? I mean, additionality is a super important concept for everyone in the clean tech market because it's the fundamental idea that whatever you're putting on the grid or putting out into the energy system is something that would not necessarily be there under normal market circumstances. So what climate policy is intended to do is to drive the energy transition forward. Mm -hmm. So to do that requires a kind of constantly rising baseline. So you have, if you were going to, if wind and solar just become super cheap to the point that it's cheaper to build that than it is to build anything else, then on some level, you don't necessarily need to continue supporting them as a government. Whereas if we're talking about hydrogen or some other form of more advanced powered clean tech deployment, you do need to be able to support that. So in either case, whatever is being additionally added should qualify for special treatment in a way because it's helping drive forward this energy transition that otherwise might not happen on its own. So they, in order to prove additionality is, is one of the big sort of fundamental driving elements of this market, in part because many of these projects are able to garner carbon credits mm -hmm. or carbon allowances by proving that they have not emitted produced emissions or produced pollution that would have been there anyway. So it's all simple in that it just anything that is added has to be additional to kind of a natural market state. On the other hand, proving it can be quite a, a difficult sort of accounting exercise. The various parties to the Paris Agreement continue to discuss this, but fundamentally the carbon allowances that are produced by projects that qualify for additionality are the accounting mechanism for meeting nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement. So you have to produce them as an economy in order to meet your nationally determined contribution. Is additionality redundant? Is, is it a redundancy? in terms of the power supply demand? Uh, will they overproduce power? Is that what you're saying? Like you'll produce power twice? Well, are, are we bringing new power into the system? If, if I'm understanding it correctly, the, the additionality concept of bringing something new into the system you know, through a direct agreement, I suppose that customer would have normally just tapped into the grid, right? Correct. Um, did, could the grid not support that existing customer to today? Or does that free up capacity within that existing grid because the, the additional piece is now meeting the needs of a very large consumer? The nice thing about these projects is they avoid that question entirely because that is exactly the kind of subject matter that gets brought up at public utility commission hearings and federal energy regulatory commission hearings and becomes very contentious. Mm -hmm. If you are directly contracting, in a way, you manage to skip over this whole discussion. You can say, instead of buying from the grid where that power could be coming from coal, natural gas, wherever, 
I know I am buying from this dedicated power plant, and therefore it is by definition additional to the structure that existed the previous year when I was buying off the grid. It's very easy to kind of prove that this is additional and then to take that and uh, that can support the creation of carbon allowances, carbon offsets for avoided pollution. Okay. And so how big, you know, we, we mentioned some of those names um, who, who are on the, the, the financial side of it. Is this group uh, financing it relatively well-defined or are new entrants still coming in? And, and are those new entrants traditional asset management, traditional investment banking? What, what, what's the, the, the makeup of these guys? Yeah, uh, they're much more uh, traditional asset managers, and there are more and more of them all the time. Uh, this market is only beginning to take off, and you will see, I think, a lot more of the asset managers begin to step into these kinds of structures. One, so the market is set to, it, worth predicting an IHS market, that this corporate renewable market will expand, will continue to grow over the coming decade. It was just shy of $8 billion this year in contracted capacity. This is 2021 numbers, so a little bit. And that's of global? Uh, this is U.S. Okay. Um, and then we're looking at $17 billion uh, a decade from now. So that's almost essentially doubling in the U.S. project uh renewable project contracting by U.S. corporations. So this is like a relatively small part of potentially the global structure. It's harder to forecast when you get outside of that because the structure of power markets gets kind of complex. There is definitely a global trend towards direct contracting across the board because it's proven to be super reliable, cheaper. There's a lot of reasons to do it. There's a, a clear motivation for it in the U.S. and in a way that works very well with the requirements of an asset manager. One of the things that will probably drive some of this growth is a move towards um, virtual power purchase agreements. So mm -hmm. to date, you've had that kind of, we talked about that direct sale element where you have one counterparty on each side. Increasingly, uh, smaller firms or firms that aren't able to take advantage of a whole large power installation will group together and sign okay. a VPPA. And they will sign that VPPA with a single financial counterparty, creating a very similar kind of structure, a little bit more complexity in terms of the del delivery mechanism, but fundamentally very similar. We have a single seller moving to multiple parties, but selling to them directly. Well, and to, to kind of put that down, so it's going to double over the next 10 years, uh, you know, plus or minus. When was it $4 billion? When did it last double? What was this? Is this a 10-year process that got us to eight, or was it 20 years that got us to eight? Oh, no. I mean, we it, it doubled in the last, I don't know, four or five years. I mean, we're coming off a low base on some right. level. So uh, it's really only sort of 2017, 2018 that you saw this market start to really accelerate and that just goes perfectly in line with the falling cost curve of solar and wind once solar panels and wind turbines got cheap enough to install then it be just became so easy to make that argument that a corporate power buyer was better off doing direct contracting 
than they were necessarily buying uh, power off the grid. I think you've had a couple of big events that have happened over the last few years that have really raised the risk profile there as well. I mean, the California blackout, the Texas blackout, you know, we're seeing a number of sort of ramifications of climate change, broadly speaking, but also kind of long-term underinvestment in the public power sector. Sure. That's driving people into these private structures. So what we, if in the uh, in the report, we look at I don't know fifteen or twenty companies in terms of the, the largest and the, the customers of, the, of these procurement agreements, and there's a real bias to service firms, uh, Bank of America, Google, Wells Fargo being the top three. Um, in the middle, we've got you know middle low. I'll say three manufacturers: General Motors, Johnson Controls, and Owens Corning. Each, you know, call it twenty to thirty percent of their total power needs being met in this way. If, if we're looking at an impact on climate, you know, when do we need to, to, to see more or do we expect to see more participation in this type of things for the non-service companies where I assume Bank of America and Wells Fargo are contributing less to ozone concerns than some of the manufacturing companies? Yes, for sure. I mean, it, so in some ways, it's uh, with the IT firms, it's good to remember that they do have bigger power footprints than you might think. They operate server farms that consume a pretty enormous amount of power. But having said that, yes, they're running out of power capacity against which they can contract. They were early adopters in this space because they have the cash flow, they have the profits, mm-hmm. they can use the tax equity, you know, they have commitments to uh, kind of greening their business overall. So a lot of reasons it worked for them. The next generation, this next decade of double, as uh, of doubling in size for that market, is going to be driven by manufacturers, industrials, who really will need the power and need the carbon allowances. They will need reliable power that they are going to have an increasing amount of trouble getting from a public grid. They'll look at the operation operating history of these assets and say. You know, I was worried I couldn't rely on the sun being out, but now that I've seen it, you combine a solar uh, array with battery storage, it actually could work for a manufacturing facility. So that will look much more realistic. And then as well, they'll also need, as they continue to rely to some degree on emitting sources of power or products that come from the petrochemical sector, they'll need to offset their sort of share in the emissions chain. And to do that, they'll need allowances and offsets, and they'll need to get those by contracting for them. When it sounds it'll reduce their costs, period. Yeah, that it you're, should. You're going to, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of good reasons to do this, but, but not least of which is it's going to improve your bottom line. Absolutely. Absolutely. So where maybe this is a good place to wrap up, but what, what are what are the things we should be watching in this space uh, in the immediate term to, to show momentum or to show, um, you know, I, I suppose, increased commitment? Yeah, so I think everybody's just going to be looking at what happens to tax equity. I, the market is maturing, but maturation is a painful process for everybody. So as we bridge from a time when we've been reliant on kind of complex tax equity structures to a more direct uh, pay model, there's going to be a a fair amount of shakeout there 
you know, companies that traditionally use the tax equity route will probably exit the market. New companies, these asset managers don't necessarily need to worry about that as much, will come in instead. There is, as part of the uh, Biden infrastructure plan, a proposal out there to make a number of these investment tax credits and production tax credits fully refundable, which essentially would allow, you know, the independent developers and solar farmers to uh, directly take the cash out of that system. So it would be be a cash flow boom for them, Mm -hmm. but it would probably be short-lived. So medium term, you're definitely looking at more manufacturing capacity coming in, more industrial capacity, a lot more use of VPBAs, probably a sustained use of green tariffs in the regulated markets, and a lot of interest from these asset managers and institutional investors in this space. All right. That was my, my, my dog scratching a door behind me, which may be a sign that we need to uh, to, to wrap up. But uh, this is a uh, incredibly interesting topic that uh, sounds, I think you did a great job simplifying a very complex operation. Um, so, so thank you for, for, for joining us on uh, Energy Sense, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Thanks. I look forward to it. All right. All right. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.